We're going to be in the book of Esther, chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 5 through 18 this morning. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away from, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked the eunuch, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Well, you know, it's, it's safe to say that everyone loves a good underdog story, unless the underdog's Appalachian State and your beloved university is on the other end. I wrote this sermon earlier this week, and when I went back and looked at it last night, I said, like, I don't know if I really believe that right now. I don't know if I love all underdog stories. But there really is something about them that kind of captures our hearts and our imagination. I mean, I say, Rudy and image conjures up. I say, Rocky. You know, I say, uh, Danielson and Mr. Miyagi, or the little engine that could, right? These stories just resonate. These unlikely rises to prominence, a bit of a rags to riches story. It's one of the things I love about the scriptures. I mean, think about how many of those we read about in the scriptures, you got a shepherd boy named David who's not even, his dad doesn't even think he's a potential king. 
He's got him in the field while they're looking at the other sons. God says, no, that's my guy. Shepherd boy to king. You got Daniel exiled by the Babylonians. Rises to become the right-hand man of King Nebuchadnezzar. You've got um, Moses, you know, sold down the river, ends up 40 years, you know, in the wilderness. And God says, you're going to free my people. He's got a speech impediment. He's like, I don't think I'm your guy. God says, you're the one. And Moses leads the people. Or Mary, Mother Mary, a, a lower middle class teenage girl from the small town of Nazareth, and the angel Gabriel comes and says, oh, you actually, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. So time and time again, you have this unlikely rise to prominence, but there may not be a more unlikely rise in the scriptures. One that would be right at the top would be the rise of Esther. Because we're not even just talking about a Jewish boy, a Jewish shepherd boy, who would be the king of Israel. We're talking about a, an exiled Jew that will become the queen of Persia. It's highly, highly unlikely. But that's what we get to look at this morning. We get to look at the rise of Esther because when we're done this morning, she's queen. And so this morning it really is about the rise of Queen Esther. But before we get there, the author wants to make sure we get introduced to somebody else first, that there's another protagonist in the story that's gonna be, play a really prominent role and it's gonna set the stage for Esther. And that's this guy named Mordecai. And we meet him in verse five. It says, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And so here in verse five, we meet Mordecai, and we get to know a little bit about him right off the bat, and, and really his family tree. What, what kind of stock does Mordecai coming from? And the author is letting you know that for a, a few particular reasons, because when you look at his family tree, Shemai, Kish, a Benjaminite, he, he's trying to tell us something, because here's the deal. The tribe of Benjamin, Benjaminite, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's Jacob's son, right? That Benjamin with his youngest son with Rachel, the tribe of Benjamin. And as you read through the Bible, there's two really famous Benjaminites. Okay, when you think of who were the most famous Benjaminites, well, the most famous one's probably the Apostle Paul. But the other one that you're pretty aware of, though you may not know he's from this tribe, is King Saul. King Saul's a Benjaminite. And the father, King Saul's father, was a man named Kish. Okay, so the author wants you to start making some connections, and he's going to emphasize this again. This is going to become a, a fascinating interplay as the story goes on that you'll see later on. But for this morning, what, what, what we need to know about Mordecai is that he's likely of a noble background, okay? Maybe even a direct descendant of King Saul himself. And yet, while he might be noble blood, he ain't a noble in Persia, is he? He's not nobility in Persia. Because remember, part of the backdrop for this entire book, this entire story, is the exile of the Jews. Like, why are they not in Jerusalem? Why are they worried about the king of Persia? Well, it's because 100 years earlier, 
the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, was invaded by the Babylonians, and they destroy it. They tear down, they burn the temple, they, they tear the city, they cut out the eyes of the king, they kill his family, they, they torture the people. It's awful. It's one of the darkest days in the history of Israel. If you want to go read the book of Lamentations, that's Jeremiah's um, uh, uh, commentary of it. it. It's tragic. And so the people that are there at the time, many of them die. Some of them flee to a place like Egypt. And then many of them are exiled and they are carried out of the promised land. And they're taken to Babylon. And then we know later that the Babylonians are then destroyed or they're defeated by the Persians. And so that's why they're in Susa, not Jerusalem. That's why they're under the rule of the Persian king, not the king of Judah. It's because of the exiles taking place. And some of those exiles, some of those people who had to leave the promised land and go into exile were Mordecai's relatives. It was Mordecai's ancestors. It was his family. So that's part of his story. And it's part of all the stories of the exiles that were living at the time. So we hear Mordecai, and then we also learn that through this process or through time, he has taken in a young woman, his, his, presumably his younger cousin, a female cousin whose mother and father have died, and he has taken her in, and he is raising her as his own. He, he is his, her adopted father, her foster father, if you will, of this young cousin girl. And we find out in verse 7 who that is. And finally, we meet Esther. It's the first time we see her name in the whole book. And so it says, there's a young woman named Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name, and she's also known as Esther. When people lived in exile far from the promised land, they typically had two names. They would have like a religious name, and then they would have the name they were known by in that community. That's why when you think of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, were, that was their pagan names. That's, that was their Babylonian names not their actual Jewish names. And so Esther is this gal right here that God has brought under the care of Mordecai. And what we learn about her is that she is an orphan, she is adopted, and she's incredibly beautiful. So she's stunning. She's stunning. As a matter of fact, it says a young woman with a beautiful figure who was lovely to look at, a beautiful figure and lovely to look at. And that's like on the first sentence of introduction, which may, be, may kind of strike you as strange. Like, why, why is he saying that right at the jump? It seems kind of superficial. Who cares how she looks? Doesn't God see his, you know, not as man sees, but God sees the heart? Why do we need to know that she has a beautiful figure and that she's wonderful to look at? Well, two reasons. One, because it was true. It was just a fact. I mean, even the, there's ancient historian Josephus, and he may have been using some hyperbole, I'll grant you, but this is what he said about Esther. He described her as he, she surpassed all women in beauty in the entire habitable world. Okay, it's pretty intense, right? So once again, maybe hyperbole, but nonetheless, the, the point is her beauty is renowned. I mean, she's stunning. But the main reason that the author is going to put this, the main reason that God leads the author to write these words is because her beauty is going to play a major role in the story. 
You follow me? Like her beauty is going to play a major role in the story because her beauty is going to open doors. I mean, let me just put it crass for a second, right? Esther is not queen if Esther is ugly. That's just the reality. Her beauty is something God's going to use to open doors. And here's the deal. Her beauty is bestowed upon her providentially by God for the purposes of God. So her beauty is a gift from God that will be used for God to accomplish the the purposes of God. It's a gift, right? It's a gift from God. And that's really not just true for Esther's beauty. It's, It's true for any gift that we have received. Any gift that we possess is that it is a gift from God to be used for God that ultimately accomplishes the purposes of God according to his providential plan. They're from God to be used for God. And so whatever that is, that, that can be, doesn't have to, you don't have to be the most beautiful person in the habitable planet. That's going to be a pretty small list. But there's other gifts. Maybe you've been given the gift of, of a, a unique intellect. Maybe it's, um, you, you have, you're somebody who has real influence, which we all have. Maybe it's the gift of the family that you're caring for. Maybe it's the, you, have a, you have the gift of God's blessed you financially. Maybe you have just a platform. Maybe you have been given the gift of having to walk through even hard things. Gift from God for the glory of God, accomplishing God's ultimate purposes. And so the key is to receive God's gifts with gratitude and to avoid comparison, to avoid comparison. Because, right, that's one of the things that can, that can rob our joy is when we look at this person's gift or this person's gift and we say, well, I want, like, I want that gift. Why do they get to have that gift? Why do they get to look like that? Why do they get to have the family like that? Why do they get that position? Why do they get that influence? Why do they get that gifting? I want that. And it robs us of our joy. But when we recognize that the gifts we have have been providentially given by God, the opportunities we have have been providentially given by God. Our opportunity then is to receive those with gratitude and to not worry about your gift or your gift or your gift and whether it's bigger than mine or better than mine or you're higher up than mine, but to be faithful in what God has entrusted me with and to receive that gift with humility, with gratitude, understanding it's part of God's providential plan. I'm not gonna play quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. It's just not gonna happen. So does that mean I mope around? Does that mean I spend all my time going, well, I guess life could have been something, but you know? Or do you look to God in gratitude and humility for the gifts he's given and walk in faithfulness to the opportunities you have, knowing it's part of his providential ultimate plan? And so Esther's beauty is a gift from God that he's gonna providentially use for his glory and to accomplish his purposes, and the same is true for every gift you have and every gift that I have. And is that the way we think about it? 
Is that the way we respond to that which we have received? And so as we go back to our story, there they are. You got Mordecai and Esther, and they're just kind of doing life, right? I mean, strangers in a strange land. Living life, laying low, keeping it cool, and then something comes to their doorstep like that they never would have imagined that's going to change their life and their world forever. And what is that? It's a, a contest. It's this edict from the king about his new search for a queen. Like we said last week, it's, it's, it's Persian idol. It's Persia's Got Talent. It's this beauty contest about who will be the next queen. Vashti is gone. Who will take her place? And, and there's a lot of things I could say here. But let me just say this. It's a pretty sad situation. It, it, it's really pretty sad because many of these young women by the virtue of them being probably beautiful and virgins, they will be sent to this contest. So I would imagine a number of them may have gone on their own. Man, I want to be queen. Maybe this is my shot, whatever the case may be. But many of them were probably commanded to go. They were made to go. And this is where the, the comparison of American Idol or Persian Idol breaks down quite a bit. Because if you ever watch American Idol, they go, they try out, maybe they make it a round or two, and then they get cut, and they're like, oh, but it was a great experience. I really learned a lot about myself. Got to go to Hollywood. Now I know what my real dreams are. And you know, hey, this is great. This is not the case here. This is a very different situation. Because for the majority of them, if not all of them, there is no going home. There is no going back. Because those who are not selected as queen would be placed as permanent concubines for the king. And so they basically, they're, they're, they become widows to a certain extent. And with that, a number of dreams dashed. Like, you're not getting married. You're likely not having a family. You probably, if you say you're, you're at home with your family or your parents and you want to help them grow old or help them die well, well, that, that may be gone. So you may live in the palace, but you are, are in some ways nothing more than a prisoner at the beck and call of the king. And so we have no idea if, if Esther went there on her own, if uh, she was compelled to go, if Mordecai commanded her to go and said, hey, you need to go. All we know is that she went is that she becomes part of it. And so she arrives, and, and you know, here's the scene. All the ladies are there, and they arrive in Susa at the citadel with the, the potential of one of the next queens is probably right here, or the next queen is in this group, is in these people. And right from the start, Esther starts turning heads. Once again, her beauty is undeniable. There's just something about Esther. And, and even she arrives and immediately is placed under the custody of this guy named Hegai who had charge of the women. It says in verse nine, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. I mean, this guy, this guy's a eunuch with the king and he sees her and she says, she's the real, I mean, she's got it. She's got the sauce, you know? And he, and he says, we're gonna give her everything she needs to be as successful as she can. So he says, cosmetics on it. I'm gonna give you everything you need to make up. Um, he says, I'm going to get you seven assistants. I'm going to get you a special diet because you got to look, you got to look good. We got to get you looking perfect for the king. I'm going to give you new digs. I'm going to give you a new space where you're going to live, all right? And it's the best of the best. 
Because I think you, I mean, you're a real threat to this thing. You got a real shot. So he gives her every advantage. And it seems so ridiculous. The whole thing, just ridiculous. I mean, we're talking hundreds of women. Josephus says 400. Another ancient historian says there are as many as 1,000. I mean, just these women, I mean, just nuts. And it would be easy to look at it and say, you know, backwards, superficial, shallow ancient Persia. All they care about is money and looks. Glad I don't live in a place like that. Glad I don't live in a superficial society that values money, power, and beauty. It just goes to show you just the more things change, the more they stay the same. The value system of the world is different than the value system of God, no matter the culture, no matter the time. And so you see it right here in ancient Persia. But the bottom line is this. In a contest focused on beauty, Esther is going to be hard to beat. That's the bottom line. She's going to be hard to beat. She's a can't-miss prospect. So she begins to rise. But as she rises, we find out that Esther has a secret. She's got something she's been holding back. She's got something she has not told, and she's been commanded by Mordecai not to tell. And that secret is that Esther is a Jew. She's Jewish. Verse 10 says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So let me just say something right now, okay? Because it's going to get even stranger. Esther and Mordecai are complicated figures. Esther is, is a complicated, um, not always clean story. And so they're, they're heroes, but they're pretty, they're pretty flawed, especially early on in the story. So this is quite a bit different than, say, the story of Daniel. Think about Daniel. He's there in the Holy Land. He's exiled to Babylon. They say, we want you to live like a Babylonian because he's a young, sharp, teenage boy. He says, we want you to live like Babylonians, eat like Babylonians, do everything that Babylonians do. And Daniel says, look, I'm a Jew. I worship the God of Israel. I will not break kosher. I will not break the law. Let me live as a Babylonian. I'm going to show you what, I mean, let me live as a Jew. I'm going to show you who I am, what I'm all about. And I'm going to do such a great job that you're going to want me. And you're going to say, your God is awesome. That's Daniel. Like it's, it's incredible his boldness. Uh, Joseph, similar deal. I will not, I will not um, have relations with Potiphar's wife. He gets in prison for it, but Joseph's just like, man, his integrity is up here the whole time. Mordecai and Esther are not always like that. And that's going to make this story in some ways even more interesting because they're not afraid to live in the gray, at least certainly early on. They're okay making some compromises. They, um, and we're going to see that, especially here in chapter 2. And that's important to understand because of what verses 12 through 14 say. Because we find out there that this whole pageant that we've joked about as being a, a Persian idol is a little bit more like the Playboy Mansion. It's, it's, it's not clean. 
And so this is what verses 12 through 14 say. So now, now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, then the young woman went into the king in this way. She was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shasgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So here's the setup. These women come in. They're the contestants. They get a year, a year of beautifying for one night with the king. And when they go in with the king, they can take whatever they want with the harem. And presumably, when they go in with the king, he can do whatever he wants with them. And so they go in as contestant, and they come out as concubine. They go in under the stead of, under the rule of one eunuch, and they come out under the rule of Shaskaz, all of a sudden, as a concubine. And that's where they will remain unless the king ever decides to see them again, which is no guarantee. They got one night. What a deal. What a deal. And you may be like, well, that's in the Bible? That's the story? That's in the story of Esther? Oh, totally. Well, I, thought, I thought the story, I thought the Bible was like, like a bunch of things that make you a better person. Or just things that you need to, to, to model, that, that model for you, and then you follow in that footsteps. Man, the Bible's the story of people and God's redemptive work in the mess of all that. And the book of Esther shines brightly because that's the situation, and that would lie, that's what lies in front of Esther. And so us knowing Esther, us knowing that she's a hero, a heroine, us knowing that she's a woman of God, like, she ain't going to do that, right? I mean, come on. She ain't going in there. She's going to say, I will not do that. I will not go in with the king. I will not sin against God. No, sir. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. And we understand there's power plays here. We understand she's not in a position of power. We understand all of that. Neither was Daniel. Okay, so she, she's complicit in it. She's complicit, and she enters in. As a matter of fact, she doesn't say, I'm not going. She goes to the main eunuch, like the, the, one of the main confidants of the king, and she goes, hey, what should I take in? What does he like best? That's her approach. You with me? And so then she heads on in. And I want to pause there for just a minute, because like I said, this is a, it's a fascinating journey. It's a fascinating book all kinds of things that aren't squeaky clean. It's one of the reasons a lot of people don't preach it. Because I can't just say, no, be like this person. Right? So let me give you just a few observations or a few thoughts that I have from what we just read and the situation we have in front of us. And the first one is this, is that God is the hero of this story and the hero of every story. He's the hero of this story and he's the hero of every story. I, I thought about this morning when I, was, when I was driving in, you know, I get up pretty early on Sundays. So I'm driving in, the sun's rising, I see the sunrise. And when I saw the sunrise, I, I, I said to myself, I don't, 
I appreciate the sunrise, but I worship the one who made the sunrise. You understand? I don't worship the sunrise. I give thanks for the sunrise and how it makes me feel, and then I worship the one who painted it. I worship the one who created it. And and I thought about that because we are always hungry for heroes, aren't we? Politician, maybe a, a, a leader in entertainment or athletics, maybe a spiritual leader that we want to look to and say, now there's the pedestal and there they are. They're a hero. And then we're shocked when they fall. How could that happen? Because they're flawed humans. Because they're not God. And because they were never meant to be on a pedestal that high. It's not their proper spot. God is the hero of this story, not Esther. God is the hero of the story of Daniel. God is the hero of the story of Joseph. God is the hero of the story of Moses. God is the hero of your story and mine. He's always, always the hero. And so it's a beautiful thing to be inspired by someone else, to be encouraged by someone else, but never forget who the true hero is and who we are called to worship for all of it. I can appreciate the sunrise, but I don't worship it. I worship the one who made it. I worship the one who brought the sun. And so the moral of the story is not be like Esther or maneuver like Mordecai because they're flawed. The moral of the story is God is in control and he is working even in the messiest of situations and he is the hero, always. Secondly, connected to this, I think Esther makes us think about the fact that we can We can have a situation where you don't approve of one's choices and still celebrate God's providence. You don't, we sometimes think those have to be together. But you can not approve of choices and at the same time celebrate God's providence. Because as we come to the end of chapter two, let me just ask you, how do you feel about Esther and Mordecai right now? How do you feel? If you haven't read ahead, do they feel heroic to you? Mordecai says, don't talk about your faith. They're clearly breaking dietary laws. She's complicit in sleeping with someone before marriage. And she will go on to marry a pagan. And Mordecai seems to be saying, absolutely. Is that what you would want for your daughter? If you're Hadassah's mom and dad? Is that what you would want? Is that what you would, would you feel good about that if you're Mordecai's father? It's complicated, right? But that's the situation. Because the point, the point again, once again, is, is not how they modeled godliness throughout the story. It's how God was faithful throughout the story. Even in the madness, even in the brokenness, he brought beauty from the ashes of their decisions. And so we don't have to celebrate their choices to give praise to God for what he did through them and what he brought out of them. And it's a beautiful thing when you have the freedom to do that because you can see God work in the, in the craziest of ways and give him praise. And I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. And I came across a video that I thought did a great job kind of 
unpacking it or maybe telling a story that illustrates what I'm trying to say. So I'm going to go ahead and show it to you right now. My name is Claire Caldwell. I'm adopted and I met my birth mother 10 years ago and she told me that I survived her abortion. Uh, they didn't know at the time when she had the abortion that she was pregnant with twins. My twin was successfully aborted, uh, but miraculously, God had his hand on my life and I survived. My birth mother was 13 years old when she had her abortion. And so um, when I met her and she shared with me about her abortion, I was 21 years old. And this was her deepest, darkest, most painful secret. And so it was a process of healing for her and of her being able to accept the forgiveness that not only I had for her, but that uh, Christ has for her. And so my birth mother is just recently beginning her journey of sharing our story um, courageously and showing uh, what abortion does to little girls like her and women across our country, but not only that, to children like me and to uh, people like my daughter who wouldn't be here if that abortion had taken my life. My birth mother told me about her abortion on our second meeting. I actually got her a gift and a card, and on the card I wrote, thank you for choosing life for me, because I knew that was such an incredible gift that she had given me, and that's when she shared with me about her abortion that was successful on my twin. I had no idea that she would share with me that I had survived something that was meant to take my life. She had tears in her eyes and her hands were shaking and um, I had never seen anything like that before in anyone's eyes. And I had no idea what she was about to tell me, but I'm so grateful um, because I was not only able to forgive her uh, for having that abortion and um, that took my twin away from me, uh, but we've been able to share our story so that um, eyes can be open to the truth and the reality of what abortion does. And so it changed me. It made me uh, want to be a voice and to use my face and my name and my story to show people and show the world that babies do survive abortions and that we are human just like anyone else. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, a tragic, painful choice that we would never say, oh, well, just look what happened. I mean, look what came from it. So that was a good choice. You don't, you don't say that. So that's a tragic choice with real consequences. And at the same time, what has God done through that? What kind of life has he changed through that? How many lives have been saved from people who stumbled across that video and chose life? Because God has this way of bringing beauty from ashes, and you don't have to affirm choices to celebrate what God does through them in his providence as he makes beauty from ashes. And that, that really brings me to my third and final point, which is just the marvelous grace of God. Just contemplate the marvelous grace of God. Because I think there's a fallacy, right, that many of us fall into, but the story of Esther kind of debunks. And the fallacy is this, is that God only uses perfect people 
and pure choices. And I think we all kind of stumble into thinking this. And we think God only uses perfect people and pure choices. And so people read Esther, and it's like, especially Esther chapter 2, and you're a little uncomfortable because you're like, how can God work through that? How can God bring blessing? Esther doesn't deserve to be queen. Mordecai doesn't deserve to be in the king's court. They, weren't, they didn't live according to the law. They didn't do exactly what they were supposed to do. How in the world could God bless them and move through them and make them the ones through whom he would save his people? Because that's the grace of God. When do you have to be perfect and pure to be used? If that were the case, we're disqualified. And so he does the same thing with you and me by his grace for his glory. And when I think about my life, just to be transparent, like when I think about my life, I think on one hand, there's some good choices I've made that I've been blessed by. And there's some poor choices I've made that I've suffered the consequences from. And I think we all recognize that, right? But there's also some poor choices I've made that God has still chosen to bless me. He's still chosen to bless me. I mean, let's just be honest. Not every good thing we have is because of a good choice we made. And that's the grace of God. And that's why we're uncomfortable with grace, because we can say, yeah, I chose good, I got good. I'm comfortable with that. Or I chose bad, I got bad. I'm comfortable. That seems fair. But what about when God blesses you and you don't deserve it? And I don't just mean generally. I mean in a specific instance. Some of you may be sitting in here right now and you're married and you got married when you weren't believers. And you would have come to me maybe at that time because you want to have your wedding at a church or in a chapel or whatever. And you come to me and say, hey, I hear you do weddings. Would you do my wedding? And I would look at them and I'd say, no, I will not. I will not do your wedding because I don't think it's according to God's design. And yet here you are. So you went outside God's design, and he said, I'm still going to bless your socks off. And I'm going to call you to myself. You may have a role at work that you didn't get by Christ-like behavior. Right? And yet God's put you in that position by his grace. You may be here as part of a, uh, a blended family. And it's not the family that you started with or that you imagine you have, but he has brought y'all together somehow. And, and there's deep love in the midst of that. And maybe even your background is tough there. And there's a tough story there. But the God blesses us sometimes, even in poor places. And, and if, you're, if your takeaway from what I'm saying here, if, the moral, if you're thinking the moral of the story is, well, Michael said I can go do whatever I want and God's got to bless me. That's, that's not right at all. There's always consequences for sin. But God's blessing is not only for the perfect and the pure. It's, it's not just for them. And he blesses us even when, at times when, when he brings blessing even out of our own mess-ups and impure decisions and wrong-headed motives. Because he's a God of grace. He's a God of grace. It's really, it's a real thing. And so many have struggled with grace on one of two ends. On one hand, we say, 
No, everything I got is because I'm really good. I made good choices. So we remove God's grace because we're just that awesome. So I know I'm just awesome. I worked harder than everybody. I'm smarter than everybody. I had no advantages. It's just, I mean, blood, sweat, and tears. And that's why I'm there. It had nothing to do with God or his favor or his grace. Wrong. Totally wrong. And then the other hand, we have people who have like some baggage. And they say, I can never receive God's grace because I've blown it up. And so you may be in a place where you're like, no, I got to this place because of poor choices, so I could never be blessed in this, in this spot. Re- or are you receiving God's grace and saying, how can I use his blessings for his purposes? Even though you may have gotten there in a way that wasn't necessarily according to God's design. Don't be, don't live in shame, live in gratitude. How could God bless me even in the midst of my wandering? It's the marvelous grace of God. And so Esther, even though Esther makes a poor choice here, she ends up as queen. And God makes her queen in a way that ultimately will save the people. And what's another thing is he's not done with Esther because even though she looks pretty sketch in in chapter two, boy, she's going to be a hero. She is going to stand fast, stand firm with deep courage and bravery. And she's going to, God's going to use her to save the people. This, this story has more chapters come. I mean, we're only in chapter two. And so here in chapter two, King Xerxes and Queen Esther, he chooses her to be queen and they live happily ever after. And the story ends. Or we've got eight more chapters of twists and turns, of God's providence and his blessing and his grace to those who don't deserve it. Amen? Well, I want to finish. I can't finish today without talking about, I thought about the rise of Queen Esther, and I thought about the rise of Queen Elizabeth. And as she passed away this week, after 70 years as a reigning monarch, the longest reigning monarch in the history of, of, of England, and how she was an unexpected rise, right? Her uncle was king. He abdicates the throne. Her father becomes king. She becomes next in line. And then she becomes queen in her 20s and reigns for 70 years. And if you know Elizabeth, you know that she had a deep faith. And so there was a number of quotes, a number of stories about her after her passing. And I came across one that was like, oh my gosh, that nails it. It's a story of, of a sermon was given by her chaplain, by one of the chaplains there about the second coming of Christ. And she goes up to the chaplain. And she says, oh, I wish that the Lord would return in my lifetime. And the chaplain looks at her and he says, well, why, your majesty? Why do you have this desire? And it says that she replied with quivering lips and as her whole countenance lighted up, I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. That's right. That's a woman who gets it. Is that whatever crown you've been given from the Queen of England to us, it's to be laid at the feet of the Savior for his purposes, knowing that it's part of his providence in gratitude and humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of this story. 
And once again, how it just beautifully points to your grace. And so we thank you for this reminder. We thank you that you don't just use perfect people with always pure motives, but you even work through people like us, imperfect people with at times impure motives. And that's just because of your grace. So make us more aware of your grace. Make us walk deeper into your grace, even as Matt was sharing in his testimony. Would you take us further and further and further and further into this marvelous wonder of the gospel of grace, how we are accepted, forgiven, redeemed, restored, renewed, loved, accepted for all of time through the blood of Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.